good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll sit down with the local theater artist behind a book and stage play that offers a different take on Dickens's A Christmas Carol. Writer-actor Tom Mula is interested in Jacob Marley's point of view. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review the new family-friendly production Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Later in the show, I'll catch up with Chicago-based artist Candace Hunter to learn more about her new exhibit, which was inspired by the writings of renowned sci-fi author Octavia E. Butler. And I'll talk to acclaimed conductor Richard Kaufman about Home Alone's classic score. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol came out 180 years ago this month. The classic tale of redemption still resonates with people today. While the book has always been popular, the story's been amplified by countless adaptations on radio, stage, and screen over the decades. Most people are familiar with the story arc of Ebenezer Scrooge, who transforms from a greedy businessman with no compassion to a kind-hearted soul with a new appreciation for life. As most of us know, he comes to this realization after being visited by the spirits of Christmas past, present, and yet to come. The supernatural intervention is coordinated by the ghost of Scrooge's former business partner, Jacob Marley, who warns his friend of his potential fate if he doesn't change his ways. Marley is bound by chains and money boxes, sentenced to roam some type of purgatory for eternity. So Scrooge gets a second chance. What about Jacob Marley? How come he hasn't had a chance at redemption? Those are some of the things Chicago-based theater artist Tom Eula was thinking about almost 30 years ago when he wrote Jacob Marley's Christmas Carol. The longtime actor, writer, director played Scrooge in Goodman Theater's popular Christmas Carol production for seven years. But over time, he started thinking more about Marley's story. In 1995, he wrote a book that provided Marley's point of view. Then he adapted the story for stage, and today it's presented in theaters all over the world. Mueller does try to do at least one reading of his work here locally. For the past few years, he's presented the holiday tale at Studio 5 in Evanston. He's doing it again this year on Saturday, December 9th. I caught up with Mueller in the Andersonville neighborhood to talk about the origins of Jacob Marley's Christmas Carol. He says the idea began to take shape while he was playing Scrooge at the Goodman, and he ended up talking to the young daughter of one of his friends. I played Scrooge at the Goodman for uh, seven seasons, and... The first season, uh, Terry McCabe, who is the artistic director of City Lit Theater on Bryn Mawr, uh, brought his daughter, uh, Hazel, to see the show. and She was 10 years old at the time. And we had, we had lunch afterwards, uh, after the matinee, and Hazel commented that she thought Marley got a raw deal. And I had always felt that. Uh, Christmas Carol is a, a pivotal, uh, foundational story for me. It's, I've loved it since, since I was a kid. Uh, one of the first semi-professional jobs I had was playing Jacob Marley um, in my neighbor Jim Allman's tire chains. So she mentioned that she thought Marley got a raw deal, and uh, that kind of planted a seed, and uh, that seed germinated a year or two later, and it started demanding to be written. I, I feel like I wasn't 
uh, I didn't write the story. I feel like I was just the typist on the story. I feel like it was out there and wanted to be told. It's, it's like the finish of, of Christmas Carol. There's a line in Christmas Carol uh, in the Dickens where Marley says to Scrooge, you have a chance and hope of escaping my fate, a chance and hope of my procuring, Ebenezer. And you, I haven't seen that in any of the movies, but what that says is that Marley arranged for these three spirits to come and visit Scrooge and, and give him a chance at redemption. But Marley still has to clank around in his own chains for eternity. And I thought that was really unfair. So uh, I, I kind of went ahead and, and opened the door to that story coming through, and it came through gangbusters. Some of the stuff in the book uh, is, is first draft. Uh, sometimes I would write something at the night and look at it in the morning and go, I don't remember writing that. Yeah. Yeah, so it was. It was uh, took me about a year to write it. I wrote it uh, about the fourth year of Christmas Carol when I was playing Scrooge, and just to try it out, I uh, did a reading, a, a benefit reading for a Season of Concern, on an off night, and it was well attended. And and Terry McCabe brought uh, Kathy O'Malley from uh, who had her radio show at the time, and uh, yeah, and and I did the reading. The reading went really, really well. And um, I was just trying it out to see, because you can tell in front of an audience what's working and what doesn't work. You know, they start coughing and dropping their change. <laughs> uh, but it went really well. And, but Kathy O'Malley loved it. And she wrote a review in the Tribune. And it was, it was just this, this Valentine. Uh, and I've always been grateful to her because partly on the strength of that review, I was able to get the book published the next year. It was published by Adams Media in Holbrook, Massachusetts. After the book came out, Mueller started to think the story might work on stage. So I'm playing Scrooge. I'm still playing Scrooge. And Scrooge is taxing. You know, it's the dark night of the soul for 80% of the show. <laughs> and then the last uh, 15%, you're running. So you got to be in great shape, and it's, it's really demanding, and the Goodman uh, packs as many shows in as they can. Uh, so that time around Christmas gets to be really kind of like a gauntlet. And there was one matinee when I was uh, downstage center sobbing in front of my gravestone. And, you know, I just kind of pulled out a little bit and said, you know, Tom, this may not be healthy. And, and I thought, gee, I really enjoy reading Jacob Marley. Maybe we can perform that. Uh, and so Steve Scott and I uh, worked uh, for the next year trying to get the thing on its feet and see if it would work, and it did. And uh, Bob Falls uh, okayed it, and uh, we did it at the Goodman in 90, either 98 and 99 or 99 and 1,000, but we did it for two years. Um, and it went very well. It was very well received. Um, and that's the story of uh, Jacob Marley's Christmas Carol. Since then, uh, I did a play script of it for other people to do. Uh, it's, it's available at Dramatis Play Service in both a four-person and a one-person version. And it gets done a lot. Um, um, it's been done all over the country. I think there's only two states it hasn't been done in. Uh, it's been done internationally a bit. I've had a production in South America and one in South Africa. Uh, um, so it gets done. So Jacob Marley's out in the world, and, and every year he sends Grandpa a check. <laughs> so it's been a while since I read A Christmas Carol. seen n numerous adaptations. Jacob Marley, from what we know, similar in his life to, to Ebenezer, like the way he acted? We, we get that they were partners, 
And that's really all we know is we assume that Marley was as bad as Scrooge because he is in chains. And he comes back to when he warns Scrooge, he says, uh, uh, I wear the chains I forged in life. Uh, and he warns Scrooge that his chains are much longer. So we get the idea that Marley was a bad guy. And, and uh, in the book, I try to flesh that out a little bit. But he's, he's pretty much of a jerk for the beginning of the book. And the beginning of the story, and of course, uh, he has his own journey, too. And he's, uh, again, for listeners that may not remember, so, uh, when he comes to, to Scrooge on Christmas Eve, he's sentenced to purgatory. Whatever you want to label it, it's not a happy place. He's, he's <laughs> wearing chains, and, and uh, uh, he's obviously in torment. Uh, there's a moment where he uh, opens the window for Scrooge, and Scrooge looks out and sees on Christmas Eve all of the spirits who are similarly bound. And Marley uh, says these are spirits who wanted to do good in their life, uh, uh, who, who, were, who didn't do good in their life, and are tortured because they cannot do good now. It's a lovely, lovely piece. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. I'm talking with Chicago-based theater artist Tom Eula about his theater piece, Jacob Marley's Christmas Carol. Let's listen to a clip from the show. Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm about to relate. I must repeat, old Jacob Marley was thoroughly, unequivocally, and irrevocably dead. In the words of the old song, he was not only merely dead, he was really most sincerely dead. (laughs) Name? I beg your pardon. Name. Come, come. This is one of the easy ones. They only get harder from here on. Marley found himself, to his surprise, in a small office, filled to overflowing with old books and ledgers. The office's sole occupant, an ancient, rather bulldogish little man, sat peering at Marley over his spectacles. Hem gone all day. If you must know, my name is Jacob Quimby Marley. I demand to know where I am. All in good time, sir, all in good time. Sit down if you wish. That pile there. Marley sat, simmering. Jacob Quimby Marley was a proper, tight, dry, pruney old thing. He looked like someone had wound him a turn too tight. Or perhaps as if he'd bitten into a lemon by mistake and hadn't liked it much. That was a recording from 2019 of the opening scene of Tom Eula's Jacob Marley's Christmas Carol. There's probably dozens of Dickens scholars out there, but you probably know as much about uh, Scrooge and Marley as anybody. Well, I'm pretty familiar with the book. I love the book. Uh, it, was, it was always a, a really important story to me uh, from the time that I saw Alistair Sims' version on uh, Channel 3 and in uh, Champagne uh, broadcast on Christmas Eve and heard the Lionel Barrymore uh, radio version. Uh, it's always been important to me, and it's it's funny, you know, I'm 72 now, and I'm looking back, and when you're going through your life, you never know if you're going to take a right-hand turn or a left-hand turn and where that's going to go. 
but you know from this end it seems like a pretty straight line and and one of the one of the things that seems to be an important thread in my life is this story a reading of it is coming up uh, in Evanston at Studio 5 this season uh, do you try to do it once here locally every year? I, I have been for the last few years. Uh, Steve Rashid and, and Bea Rashid uh, had that lovely performance space on Dempster uh, Studio 5. And Steve, we did uh, a radio version of, uh, recorded a radio version at, of, of Jacob Marley that was done on NPR for, oh, six seasons or something. But we recorded it in Steve's basement. Steve was the engineer on it. And... Um, uh, Larry Shanker wrote uh, the music for it, uh, so it's this lovely, and it's been reissued on uh, Amazon now, it's available on Audible, uh, uh, this uh, performance of Jacob Marley with Larry's accompaniment. And Steve invited us to do it at Studio 5, and we've been doing it there, and uh, uh, people seem to enjoy it. Yes, yeah, Steve has a, a show on WDCB, so we, we, we cross paths, uh, yeah, he's a great guy. There's a couple different ways to perform Jacob Marley's Christmas Carol. It can be done as a one-man production like Mula does, but there's also a version for four or five actors. In the one-man version, uh, the audience gets to participate in the creation of the experience. They get to imagine. It's like a radio show. It's like they get to imagine this this tormenting uh, hell that these spirits live in. They get to imagine all the magic that happens in the story. So they're really co-creators. And I found that the audience is really very grateful for that experience. A Christmas Carol is important to you, and I think it's important to a lot of people listening. It's a timeless holiday story. Uh, for uh, Jacob Marley's Christmas Carol, do you have hopes for what new audiences take away from it? Well, when I was writing it, it was really important to me that it not be a parody, uh, that it would do... I respected the Dickens so much, I wanted to kind of duplicate that same gift of hope to an audience. Here in America, it's, it's very easy for us to get uh, ground down by uh, capitalism. And uh, uh, it seems that to me that that's part of the reason that Christmas and a Dickensian Christmas is such a big deal in America, is that we need it so bad. So that I was trying to do the same thing with Jacob Marley's Christmas Carol, and uh, I feel like I wasn't unsuccessful. I was reading in preparation for our conversation just about what inspired Dickens and that he would he saw the condition of a lot of these children that were forced to work at a young age and this was his way of like trying to inspire um, England uh, to think about things differently and I think obviously throughout time there's different things that we could it's kind of like this universal message but yeah right now with uh, lots of things going on in this country or even here locally with people from other places being here yeah I just think that the message is very universal for sure it's it's uh Dickens, you know, we use Dickensian in London as, as an insult. You know, it's, it's, it's a horrible, uncomfortable place to be. Uh, and it was. It, child labor, uh, labor for everybody. If you, weren't, if you didn't have money in Dickensian in Lo- London, you were living a pretty lousy life. Yeah, so, so he had a lot to write about. And there is a lot in the book that never makes it to a lot of the movies uh, that is very socially conscious, that is very socially progressive. Um, Dickens was, was, felt very strongly about that, uh, and he got that into the book. It's, uh, like I said, movies don't really use that very much, but it's so implicit in the story. The story is so much about, you know, stop being such a jerk and think about other people. That's basically, uh, 
the message of a Christmas Carol, and you have a chance. You have a chance to do better. And those are all. Those are such necessary things for people to hear. Tom, it's been a pleasure. Pleasure for me. Thank you. <laughs> That's Tom Mula. He'll be performing Jacob Marley's Christmas Carol Saturday, December 9th at Studio 5 in Evanston. You can find ticket info at studio5.dance. And check out Tom's website at tomula.com. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the arts section every Sunday morning here on 90.9 or 90.7 FM, thank you. Make sure to check out the show's website, theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the art section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. A Jim Henson holiday television special that premiered back in 1977 is now an onstage musical. It's called Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. And not only does it have the Jim Henson pedigree, it also has music and lyrics created by Academy Award-winning composer Paul Williams. The production, which includes a cast of both humans and Muppets, is making its Chicago debut at the Studebaker Theater inside the Fine Arts Building. And we talked a, a couple weeks ago during our holiday theater preview about the mix of returning traditions and new works that are being presented in Chicago this holiday season. Carrie, you were saying Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas kind of hits a, a sweet spot amidst a lot of those other productions. Absolutely. I do want to be careful to note that uh, we I, I was told that we're not supposed to refer to them as Muppets, although they are from the Jim, you know, the imagination of Jim Henson and Associates. Uh, the Muppets are, I guess, a trademark thing oh, for okay. just those particular characters. Color me educated on that. Now. Gotcha. But yes, it, it, they're definitely in that vein. I found this show utterly charming. I had seen the special, not when it first aired, but sometime in the 90s. Uh, a friend of mine had a, a, a you know VHS version of it that he had lovingly treasured for, for some time, and I thought it was just you know just delightful then too. It's basically a riff on the gifts of the Magi. We have Ma Otter and Emmett, the, ti- the title character. They're river otters living in you know in, in a small you know rural community downriver, of course, because they're river otters. They're poor. They want to get each other something nice for Christmas. Emmett wants to get Ma a piano. Uh, uh, Emmett himself would love to have a pearl inlay guitar that's in the window of the local music shop. When the uh, the mayor announces a talent contest with a $50 prize for Christmas Eve, they both kind of decide that's how they're going to get the money to give each other what they want. Things don't quite go as they planned, but this is a show that actually does tell us that when you trust the people around you, or trust that branch, as one of the songs puts it, you can find love and you can find connection and what could be better for the holidays. I really don't have much 
of anything negative to say about this show, Jonathan. Maybe I'm just in a, in a decidedly unscrooge-like <laughs> mood at the moment. But I would, I would love to know what your thoughts on on this little honey of a show, as I would put it. Uh, well, now, Carrie, we'll see whether I can find the things that you miss. <laughs> I'm, sure you, I'm sure you can. Well, I'm sure you can. <laughs> I, I, Humbug. <laughs> I, too, found this a charming, colorful, and tuneful show. Uh, one which is new to me because, of course, by the time Jim Henson made a TV show out of this in 1977, I was already a crusty old curmudgeon. So, uh, so I, I miss it. Uh, and uh, a lot of kids and their parents may know it from the television version or even from the original children's book from which it was taken. This live version is based on the Henson adaptation with these really delightful songs by Paul Williams, as you noted, Gary. And Paul Williams knows his country music licks. He knows his folk music licks. He knows his ballad licks. And he puts all of them into this uh, delightful little score. He even sings one of the songs himself, since the show uses pre-recorded music rather than a live band. And you know, some people might say this is something not to like about the show if you want to be picky and critical. But you know what? The kids are not going to care whether the band is live or recorded. They're not going to care whether the musicians are union or non-union or whether the cast is equity or non-equity. They'll love the song, so will adults. And they'll also love the really colorful costumes, which feature lots of feathers and fur and big bushy tails to represent <laughs> the, the many animals. And people will love the general silliness, sweetness, but silliness of the story and the comedy. You know, the puppets, as one might expect, are wonderful and use a variety of puppetry techniques. Uh, Gary, which you were talking about a little bit, we have rod puppets, we have hand puppets, and even... Japanese-style doll puppets. There are 15 people on stage in the cast, and they're split pretty evenly between puppeteers, whom you do not actually see until the curtain calls, and actors playing various animal characters, among them foxes and squirrels and bullfrogs and badgers and rabbits and snakes, skunks, muskrats, minks, <laughs> a mink, a woodpecker, and, of course, the, the, the otter, the the uh, the boy otter of the, the title, Emmett Otter himself. The cast is split between New Yorkers and Chicagoans, as this company was put together specifically for this Chicago run. Uh, I, I would go on, uh, Carrie. You can interrupt me if you have something you 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 need to you need to add. Uh, I was going yeah. to go on. All right. No, I'm just I'm just like nodding enthusiastically to everything oh, that you're oh, saying oh. about this. I think the design elements really do pop. And I was just going to say that I think um, it's nice to see this show at the Studebaker, too, um, which has, you know, I think been trying to find a good commercial hit, you know, since they've kind of gone through their refurbishment. And this is a perfect holiday gift for them as well, I would think. Yes, and, and that's what I was just going to go on. See, we are so much on the, the same page yeah, right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's a holiday miracle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the show is a good fit for the handsome Studebaker Theater, which, which, as you know, is celebrating its 125th anniversary this year. And, and uh, I should emphasize, it, this is not a puppet theater-sized production. 
This right. is fully staged uh, with Broadway-style scenery, lighting, and sound design. Um, as we said, it's a brand-new holiday season show, something different from the usual offerings. What we don't know is whether or not the Studebaker management intends to make Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas an annual event or not. I hope they do, although it might take a couple of years to build an audience and I, am also, I, have, I have also heard rumors that, you know, and unsurprisingly, of course, given Paul Williams' pedigree especially, and, and the Henson connection, that uh, Broadway ha- might be sniffing around as well. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. I would imagine that that would be a pretty hard uh, offer to resist <laughs> if they get that versus the Studebaker. But I, I just absolutely think it's, 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 it's so hard sometimes to find holiday shows that are geared for every age. And I think they're recommending this, or perhaps I think six and over, but... I think relatively, you know, attentive younger children might might be able to handle it as well. And it's not so saccharine or um, dumbed down that adults cannot enjoy it. There's even a little bit of a tiny, tiniest little bit of a burlesque naughtiness <laughs> in one of the there numbers is. by Mrs. Mink, who has heretofore been seen as a very sort of demure creature. You know, the great thing about the talent show, which takes up the last part of this, I think it's about a 75-minute show, so it goes pretty fast. That's kind of the built-in show within the show excuse to let everybody kind of have their moment to shine in the spotlight. And boy, does Mrs. Mink make the most of it. <laughs> really, really. Uh, yeah, it runs just over 75 minutes. And I mean, I think it's suitable for kids four and up, as long as they, you know, they have a 75-minute a, a attention span. There's sure. No, there's no intermission. And they are running through the holiday season uh, several extra matinees on weekends. I think there are right. three Saturday shows, earliest one at 11 a.m., and Sunday may be, uh, uh, may be the same thing. Now, actually, this show, this show, technically, this show was seen on Broadway. It was done in, in for the 2021 holiday season at the New Victory Theater, which is a smaller theater right on 42nd Street in the, um, in the Broadway Theater District that specializes in family-oriented uh, Right. I think it was, so it was done described and then, as an off-Broadway production, but yeah, I think you okay, are correct on yeah. that. Yeah. But then everything was, you know, all the co- scenery and costumes were put in storage, and this is the first time, this Chicago production, first time in two years they've hauled them out and they've put in an, a new cast, and, uh, and, yeah. and here we are. Yeah. I wanted to note something, too, which I, we're talking about families, and this is maybe the first time I've seen something like this, so maybe it's just been happening and I haven't been aware. There was a little note tucked inside the program that said to families, if you or your children need to take a break or stretch your legs, please join us in the theater lobby where we have a monitor and sound so you don't miss a minute of the show. That's a lovely little thing to throw in, you know, for people who, some people do have shorter attention spans, or maybe you're an adult with a coughing fit who just feels that you need to absent yourself for a bit to not, you know, not annoy the people around you, but you can still see some of the show happening. Um, And I thought that was, that's just a nice little touch. It's a very... Um, it, the show feels very welcoming, and that's really what the theme of it is about. Yeah, As I mentioned, yeah. Gift of the Magi, you know, uh, Emmett, you know, drills a hole in Ma's wash tub that she needs for her business to make it a uh, base so that he can play in the, 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 the jug band of the title. Meanwhile, you know, Mrs. Otter sells his tools or pawns them so she can get a nice dress to sing at the, <laughs> the, at the event. And, um, yeah, you think, oh, is, where is this going to go? Well, of course it's going to go into a happy place. This is a holiday show, for gosh sake. <laughs> um, we should mention also, we're talking about the Studebaker management and what they may intend. 
they apparently are looking at a series of possible family-oriented shows because they have another one coming in at the end of January for a one-month one. Yes, I get yes. the Studebaker Theater January 31st to February 25th, Dogman, the musical, a hilarious, heartfelt family adventure. So that'll be you know almost two in a row with only only a few weeks in January between these shows. So, um, you know, one of us ought to put on our reporter hat, call up those Studebaker folks, and... <laughs> and uh, and and file a freedom uh, freedom of information request and, and see what we can find out. Are, are you saying they're in the pocket of big family? <laughs> <laughs> All right, sounds like two recommendations. Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas continues at the Studebaker Theater through the end of the year. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. You're Gary. welcome. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the Arts Section on WDCB. Throughout her career as an artist, Candace Hunter has taken inspiration from acclaimed science fiction author Octavia E. Butler's work. So when she was presented with the opportunity to do her largest ever solo exhibition at the Hyde Park Arts Center, Hunter thought of her favorite author. I took a walk through the gallery, and it's large. It's 1,600 square feet. And I said, this is the time that I can really expand how I think and how I do. And so I started thinking about what that could look like with some of Octavia's work. The exhibit, Candace Hunter, The Alienations and Sovereign States of Octavia E. Butler, opened last month. I recently caught up with the Chicago-based artist at the Hyde Park Arts Center to talk about the new exhibit and her decades-long appreciation for Butler's writings. I discovered Octavia Butler when I was in college and I read the book Kindred. And Kindred was familiar to me because of how the story moves back and forth to the antebellum South to a very modern time. And it was very, very science fiction-y, you know, it was a girl who is slipping through time and doesn't understand why. And so that part of the story was familiar and the history of the Americas was very familiar and the modernity was very familiar. So it was a very easy book to get into. That was in college, and that was uh, more than a few years ago. (laughs) And I've always enjoyed her writing, and there was no one else like her at that time who was writing science fiction who looked like me. And so she stayed with me, and when new work came out, I immediately grabbed it and read it. Octavia E. Butler was an author many considered ahead of her time. She wrote 12 novels over the course of her career and became the first science fiction author to be awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant. Her works were often set in future worlds and explored issues of gender, race, and class. Butler passed away at the age of 58 in 2006. Hunter, who has specialized in collages over the course of her career, created her first Butler-inspired work around 12 years ago. I was doing some work at the Little Black Pearl here in Chicago, the Arts Center, and a friend Heidi Hickman said, we're doing this work that's about Octavia and futurism and Afrofuturism. And and so I created a portrait of Octavia based on one of her photograph portraits, and it was called Octavia Scape. And I was very excited to do it because not only was it going to show in the gallery at Little Black Pearl, 
but there'd also be a weekend where it'd be installed at the MCA. So I could go, oh, mm -hmm. I'm in the MCA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not really, but you know, I got to say that. Mm -hmm. And it was a beautiful piece and I sold it. So it was no longer in my possession. And then a couple of years later, I got a message from another sci-fi speculative fiction writer by the name of Tanana Reed Du. She reached out to me and I, I thought it was a junk email because why would this well-published writer <laughs> reach out to me? So she was at Spelman College at the time and she was putting together the first colloquium on Octavia Butler at Spelman. We had one friend in common, so she had seen my work through their Instagram page. And she reached out and asked me, could she use the Octaviascape for the banner art for the whole colloquium so it would be up all over the campus, all over Atlanta, and people all over the country would see it because it was a far-reaching event. And I said, yes, of course. A few years later, Hunter was part of the Artist-in-Residence program at the Pfister Hotel in Milwaukee. Her work ended up being voted audience favorite. Because I won that, I was offered the ability to have a solo show at the Intercontinental Hotel in Milwaukee in their gallery space. As Hunter thought about ideas for the exhibit, she was inspired by something she read in one of Butler's journals. I'm flipping through a magazine and I see this article that the Huntington Library had opened up their archives on Octavia Butler. So I'm just like, wow. And I'm flipping through this article and I'm just like, how exciting is this? And they had um, images of some of her journals, some of her handwritten work. And one of the pages, she had scribbled um, emphatically the word, so be it, see to it. And it underlined it like three times in exclamation marks. And I took that as marching orders. Here's Octavia saying, so be it, see to it. I did a series of 15 collages per book for seven of her books. Okay so that you could literally re visually read the work from left to right as if you were flipping pages. And they were small collages, they were eight inch square and very colorful and, and so you could just walk down a hallway and know what her work was by the time you got to the other end. And so I pulled as many other kinds of voices to be collaborators with me as I created that work. Um, the work went up and it was, well received, but but it was Milwaukee. So arts critics aren't going to be there. And the work really wasn't for sale. So it looked beautiful, the people came to see it, loved it, but then it went put in boxes to be packed up to for another time. And I had no idea what the other time would be. And then I got a call from the curator at the gallery at Hampshire College in Massachusetts and said, hi, we met at Nick Cave's opening. Our college read is Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Let's talk about your work coming down here. And I was just like, my eyes, you know, like bugged out. And I was just like, really? Okay, so I had my first academic gallery showing from that work because she had seen a couple of the images. And also the Huntington Library reached out to me. Octavia just kept being my friend. So, you know, even though she was deceased, she was, I felt like this woman and her voice were 
taking me down the road, and, you know, we were giggling on the way. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. I'm talking with Chicago-based artist Candace Hunter about her new exhibit that was inspired by the writings of author Octavia E. Butler. After her experiences in Milwaukee, Hunter was approached by the Hyde Park Arts Center. Then the opportunity came here at the Hyde Park Arts Center where they offered me the Cantor Gallery. And I was just like, wow. And so my first presentation here, I presented what I wanted to do. My curator, Allison Peters Quinn, said, oh, we thought you were putting up some of your framed collages. And I'm just like, no, I want to create worlds. And she was just like, okay, (laughs) what is that going to look like? So... You know, I quickly started building it out and created maquette to see what I could really do with the space. And I pretty much stayed with the original concept of how I had two worlds. So the world of Parable of the Sower, which looks like the world we live in today, and the world of Xenogenesis that is the most of Octavius writing that looks like what we think of as science fiction. There are aliens and spaceships and all of that. When the uh, that Hyde Park Art Center opportunity came about, you had already been thinking of exploring those two series in particular? No, not, real, not really. The opportunity to have space and to do something bigger than what I've been able to do in the past, because it's always about space, opportunity, and time to do the large work. And if you don't, it's hard to do that, you know, unless that opportunity is given to you. So I was just like, oh, so, you know, it really was probably no more than an evening of thinking about it and like, what could I do? The idea of this came. Hunter was specifically interested in exploring two of Butler's series for this exhibit, the Xenogenesis Trilogy and the Parable series. She describes the exhibit as an alien lush space. One of the first things visitors will notice is a lineup of doors. When you walk in the gallery, you will see the back side of doors that represent doors flung open where people have had to leave out of. And doors have always been kind of magical to me when I, when I see them. I'm always trying to figure out who lived behind that door, who opened that door, what happened inside of that house. That's always been, since I was a little girl and I'd see abandoned doors somewhere, I mean like, oh, who, who touched that knob? What were their stories? And then on the opposite side of the, the doors, kind of on the other side of the gallery, uh, against the wall, there's a, a series of silhouettes and mirrors. There are a series of the same character Her name is Lilith, it's the main character from Xenogenesis. And she finds out once the aliens allow her to know that they're there and then start introducing her to their world and how they live. It's finally revealed to her that in order for them to survive, they must mate with the race that they rescued. So she is going to have to mate with one of these alien beings, the Oankale. And this does not sit with her well at all at first. These things are difficult to look at, difficult to think about. 
Um, she goes through a long time where she literally cannot look at one for long. It takes her a long time to finally just open her eyes and see one. And, and so her journey through the story is one of coming to some sort of acceptance of her new master. It harkens back to Kindred, which was Octavia's first book, of going back in time to a plantation where you do not have sovereignty over your own body. So the same thing is happening in this alien world. So even though they're very nice and kind, as when you have no control over your own body, what does it really matter? And so Lilith changes. It's the same figure that's cut out of wood, but she changes how I dealt with them. So one is covered in raffia, one is covered in handmade papers, one is covered in VHS tape. The wonderful thing about VHS tape, it's magnetic and it holds a story. So I like the idea that you don't know what the story is that's covering her body, but it's, so it's like DNA. It's holding information. There's information there. I chose different kinds of materials that hopefully gave a different sense of being for her at different steps and walks. There are a number of other elements inside the exhibit, including a reading nook with plush seating. Visitors can pick out a book from the shelf and make themselves comfortable. Hunter is hoping visitors leave thinking about how we see ourselves and others. I hope people, especially when they're looking at the xenogenesis side, that they start to think about otherness and who is other and am I other? Who am I looking at? Why are they other? I hope that they start to have that kind of thought. So in the show, between the Lilith walking, so it's of her in a walking stance, this cut out in wood, um, but then we have funhouse mirrors. So, you know, you can be in a room and be very secure in who you are, and then you pass by a mirror that's lopsided or crazy, and you see you, but you're not you. So is that image what someone else is seeing? Or is it the real person? And so what has changed? What doesn't change? What can change? So I'm hoping that questions the other is softened a bit especially as we're going through crises in our city, in Chicago, with the migrant crises and other cities that are dealing with that, that we recognize that person over there really is still me. And I'm them, and there is no difference. So I'm hoping that's one of the takeaways. While Butler came to Chicago several times and was inducted into Chicago State University's International Black Writers Hall of Fame in 2005, Hunter never crossed paths with the renowned writer. I never got to meet her, but I do know that several times she was in Chicago for the Gwendolyn Books Literature um, Festival weekend that Chicago State has been doing for, I don't know how long, for a very long time. It's decades um, that they've been doing this conference. And um, I have friends like the writer um, Sandra Jackson Opoku who got to meet her one time. I have secondhand information about her as a person, even though I never got a chance to meet her. 
Candace Hunter, The Alienations and Sovereign States of Octavia E. Butler will be on display through March 3rd at the Hyde Park Arts Center. And there are a number of public programs connected to the exhibit that are taking place. You can find more info at hydeparkart.org. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. According to a new Yahoo survey that asked Americans what holiday movies and specials they watch every year, Home Alone came in at number one. The 1990 box office hit was named by 34% of all respondents, coming in just ahead of a Christmas story and a Charlie Brown Christmas. I made my family disappear. Kevin, you're completely helpless. No, Kevin, you're what the French call les incompetents. Kevin, I'm going to feed you to my tarantula. Kevin, you are such a disease. There are 15 people in this house, and you're the only one who has to make trouble. Look what you did, you little jerk. I made my family disappear. Written by John Hughes, Home Alone is especially popular here in the Chicago area, which is where the film is set and where Hughes spent his formative years. The movie's mix of physical comedy, quotable lines, and touching family dynamics have aged well over the years. Home Alone's all-star cast includes Macaulay Culkin, Catherine O'Hara, Joe Pesci, and John Candy. Another thing that helps the film stand out is its Academy Award-nominated score, created by legendary composer John Williams. Later this week, the mighty Chicago Symphony Orchestra will continue its holiday programming with Home Alone in Concert. The renowned orchestra will perform the film's score live as the holiday favorite plays on the big screen in Symphony Center. I recently caught up with celebrated conductor Richard Kaufman, who will be leading the Home Alone in Concert performances December 8th, 9th, and 10th. We talked about what makes John Williams' score so exceptional and what it's like conducting an orchestra during a live screening of a film. Kaufman resides in Southern California, but comes to Chicago to conduct many of the CSO's live film score programs. The acclaimed maestro has always been drawn to the film and TV industry. I started violin when I was seven years old, a kind of a classical background. But living in Los Angeles, I had the opportunity to participate in concerts and recitals that also included other kinds of music. When I was in a youth orchestra, I guess I was about nine years old, we were asked to be the orchestra behind Jack Benny at uh, the Greek Theater here. So all of a sudden I was doing a week with Jack Benny, and then uh, my parents always had exposed me to film music. We would go to movies every week, and, and the business was kind of all around us. Kaufman's musical journey began to take off while he was still in college when some new opportunities began to present themselves. I ended up uh, in college actually starting to play in the studios. I was given that opportunity by a man named Sid Feller, who happened to be Ray Charles' arranger. So I was playing in the studios on Ray Charles' recordings and doing the Grammy Awards and all this sort of thing while I was in college. 
and then just kind of segued after college. I was conducting musicals and things and uh, also playing in the studios and just kept on doing that and uh, had great opportunities to uh, meet people like John Williams. The first film I played on of John's was, uh, was Jaws. And we became friends and also I played on a number of other films before I got out of the studio playing and into music supervision, which uh, started at 20th Century Fox and then went on to uh, MGM, where I was there. I was there for about 19 years supervising music for television and film and animation. But the studio playing was really exciting, and it was really an honor because the musicians in the studios were just some of the best musicians in the world, and I would sit there and kind of pinch myself and say, wow, you know, I get to be around uh, some of the, the, the greatest players and composers, working with Hank Mancini and Jerry Goldsmith and different people. I was like a kid in a candy store, really. I was just having a great time. I can imagine. So you bring up John Williams, a, a person who needs no introduction. He's responsible for so many tremendous film scores. In your opinion, for those of us that don't have a, a musical mind, what is it about his approach that, that yields so much tremendous music? Well, I think that he has a tremendous sense of drama. Elmer Bernstein, the great film composer, Magnificent Seven, Ten Commandments, etc., was once asked what's the most important skill for a film composer. He didn't say writing great melodies or harmonies. He said, above all, you have to be a great dramatist. And John just has this innate, wonderful uh, skill within him himself of looking at the screen and knowing what music can do uh, in every situation. Uh, he's such an eclectic composer. If you look at his, at his body of work, you know, people think Star Wars and E.T. and Ra Raiders of the Lost Ark. But then you look at Schindler's List uh, and Memoirs of a Geisha. Uh, the list goes on and on, all sorts of different musical genre. But I think the most important thing is that you don't have to have a musical mind to appreciate John's music. He touches people in such a deep way, musically and emotionally. I think that that's what, what really uh, stands out to me. Yeah, John's music is the kind of music where you don't even need to see the film to appreciate it and to that it, that it moves you in, in such a beautiful way, whether you're watching the film or not. Exactly. That was actually uh, my own personal journey with Home Alone. I remember watching it as a, a child uh, at a friend's birthday party, and I thought it was funny. And that was the film, if you were a kid, of 1990. And then I probably didn't rewatch it again until college, and then I find my, I found myself rewatching it every year in my my 20s for uh, nostalgia. And then at a certain point, I started paying more attention to the music. And then a couple of years ago, I began just listening to the Home Alone score on its own around this time of year. It just puts me in a, a good mood. Uh, so from your perspective, uh, how do you describe the, the Home Alone score? What is it about it that makes it special? I once asked John about E.T., and I was going to do a concert, and I had, had never conducted the music before, and so I called and I said, do you have any anecdotes about the score for E.T.? And he said, oh, dear boy, it's just cartoon music. And what he was saying was that the music accompanies what you're seeing and what the characters are feeling in very bright colors. And so I think that when things are going very badly for uh, little Kevin and the two guys are in the house, the music you know that John writes could accompany the most serious of dramas. John doesn't miss a moment 
of drama in Home Alone. And when it's bright, it's bright. When it's fun, it's fun. When he's sliding, you know, escaping from the house down the rope, it's very exciting. The moments with uh, the next-door neighbor, uh, Marley, are just so touching. At the end of the film, where Marley... I'm probably not giving anything away. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're safe. Uh, Where Marley is reunited with his granddaughter and his son and all. I mean, it's just uh, the most touching of moments. And then his family comes back, and, uh, and and I think that that's that's really what the music does. It takes you on this journey that you're looking at, just very exciting and fun and beautiful and nostalgic and emotional. And that piece of music that you were referring to at the end of the film, I believe that's. Uh somewhere in my memory and that's a reoccurring musical theme that pops up throughout the movie right somewhere in my memory yeah for which he was nominated for an oscar for best song john there were two oscar nominations for this film one for best song and one for best score right so that kind of tells you that the music uh, had a spotlight on it i actually was at one of the sessions i wasn't playing at that time i you know was into my music supervision life but i was invited over so i went over to the session over to the fox and uh, it happened to be the day that mel torme came to record have yourself a merry little christmas have yourself a merry little christmas let your heart be sitting there listening to one of the great singers and one of the great songs and watching John doing this wonderful arrangement of the song and hearing the orchestra live. I mean, there's just really nothing like it. And that's really what the audiences experience at the TSO at the movies presentation, because not many people get to go on a scoring stage. But when you're in, in the concert hall and watching the orchestra bring the music to life live. It's like you're on the scoring stage. I mean, it's uh, it's the same thing, only much more visually exciting, I think, to see. And, of course, if you have the Chicago Symphony playing the music, you know, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> as good as it gets. <laughs> Not too shabby. <laughs> no, no. There are times I'm on the podium conducting these films, and I, you know, my mind wanders to, wow, look at that. There's that film, there's Casablanca, and here's the Chicago Symphony playing the score, and how did I get to heaven so soon? <laughs> Once again, as in olden days, happy golden days of yours. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with conductor Richard Kaufman about John Williams' Home Alone score. You'll be conducting the Chicago Symphony Orchestra as it performs the score live as Home Alone is playing at Symphony Center. You alluded to it just there. What are the keys to a successful live score performance? Well, my goal is always to recreate exactly what John, or what the composer uh, had written, why he or she wrote it, what their intention was musically, and to, to recreate it in a way that if the composer were sitting in the audience, they would say, yeah, that's exactly what I was hoping this would be. So that's always my goal. And 
and also to you know hopefully in, inspire help inspire the orchestra to have a good time. It's music that is unfamiliar to them most of the time, almost all the time, and so it's a time of discovery and and it's a little crazy because they have to follow me because you know there's synchronization that must take place. So there's a lot of a lot of that going on, and that can be you know uh, mentally very challenging. Right. I think I remember reading something about when Mr. Williams was composing the score, knowing that there was a lot of physical comedy in the last fourth of the film. There was some discussion about whether the music should play over the sound effects or how would that work, and he came up with this idea of where the, the music would be playing and then kind of let the, the sound effects for some of the, the physical comedy be their crescendo. And so in this instant, when you'll be conducting the orchestra live, I guess that goes to what you were talking about as far as synchronizing everything when you're performing it live. Everything really does need to be right on time. Yes, that's exactly it. There is no gray area. Uh, and again, it's very much like animation because, you know, with sound effects and all that. And of course, John is brilliant at, uh, you know, having the music work with the sound effects and all of, all of that. But, uh, you know, and, and Home Alone is a very special film, I think, because it really does capture so many emotions and the music is so important to that film as it is to, you know, most films. Really quickly, since I have you here um, and you have a deep knowledge of film scores, what are your favorite two or three to conduct in front of an audience? I'll tell you, if I had to come up with one or two, one of them would be Singing in the Rain. Okay. Um, I love the film. The music is incredible. The, the whole film is just classic, exciting. It's like conducting a Broadway show on film. And I did a lot of musicals. So I love Singing in the Rain. I love Psycho. Of course, I love all the John Williams films because it's John's music. That's Richard Kaufman. He'll be conducting the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's three performances of Home Alone in Concert December 8th, 9th, and 10th. And you can find more information at CSO.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links to go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of The Art Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.